Verdun has become a battle of madmen inside a volcano. French staff officer, Verdun, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast, episode 8, Vo. Episode 8, man. Wow. So, I just want to give a quick shout out um, this week to uh, listeners uh, Alberto and Kyle, who have liked the uh, Facebook page for the Battle of Verdun podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. I greatly appreciate uh, the ability to put a face to the listeners out there. Thanks. Really appreciate liking the page and listening to the podcast. So, coming back down to shellhole level, uh, when we last left the Verdun battlefield, it was June 2nd, and Fort Vaux, one of the key points of French General Philippe Betain's line of resistance, had been surrounded and cut off in a new German attack on the right bank uh, whose focus was the Diomont-Fleury-Fort-Souville-Fort-Vaux line. This new push by the German 5th Army had begun the day before, June 1st. Once again, French units were overwhelmed by the barrage of explosive and gas shells and their lines crumbled against the onrush of haggard and sunken-cheeked men in Feldgrau. The Germans, by now used to and numbed to the unimaginable slaughter of men and the meager shifts of the front line, gave themselves four days to get to Fort Vaux. But when the French line gave way, they seized the opportunity. And as exhausted as their men might be, the German leadership pushed them to move on Fort Vaux now, now, now. And so, by the second, Diamant had fallen and Fort Vaux was surrounded. Fort Vaux, though, would be no Diamant. After the disaster of having lost the mighty Fort Douaumont at the beginning of the Battle of Verdun, the French army quickly attempted to right its past wrongs of having stripped all those forts around Verdun. So Fort Vaux, lying a mile to the southeast of Douaumont itself, and now finding itself on the front line of the battle, was quickly regarrisoned with 250 men and rearmed. Fort Vaux had one turret, which mounted one of the famous French Soissons-Gans guns. And unfortunately, this gun was quickly taken out in a lucky shot by German artillery. So, while its main armament was out, Fort Vaux still had a lot of machine guns, which were mounted in bunkers 
built into the corners of the fort that were connected to the superstructure of the fort itself by underground tunnels. On June 1st, when the German attack came, Major Reynal, the commander of Fort Vaux, could see through his field glasses that German troops were coming his way through the stumps of what used to be the Bois de la Cayette, a mile and a half to the northwest of Vaux. So Reynal, as commander of the fort, did what he could do to assist in defending the French line. Despite the bombardment of the fort and the pitted desert all around it, Reynal's men set up two machine guns on the superstructure of the fort and they aimed them in the general direction of all those Germans a mile and a half away and they opened fire. And this wasn't machine guns firing at max effective range. This was machine guns firing at max range, period. I mean, they basically just put those things on elevate and launched rounds at the Germans hoping they would hit. They did. They wound up leaving the field covered with German bodies. But the Germans kept coming, and once the Germans cleared the Bois de la Cayette, the ground dipped into a sort of low ground dead zone where the men on Fort Vaux couldn't reach them, pretty much until those men would show up at the moat of Fort Vaux itself. So in the spirit of uh, adapt, improvise, and overcome, Major Reynal and his men had done what they could do to assist in the defense. They would not sit idly as the Poilus outside the fort suffered the latest German attack. The incident also showed just what kind of man Major Sylvain Eugène Reynal was. He was resourceful, tenacious, and tough as all hell. He was another man in the same mold as Lieutenant Colonel Emile Drion had been. But where, at near 60, Drion appeared vigorous and full of life, Reynal, at 49, was kind of a stocky guy who limped and used a cane. The difference in appearance, though, lied how similar in character to Drian Reynal actually was. And there was a reason for the cane. Reynal was a career soldier from the colonial days, and he'd been wounded several times since the war had begun. In fact, he should have been medically kicked out of the army. He was so badly beat up. But he insisted on staying and got himself command of Fort Vaux because fortress duty was thought to be easier than serving in the trenches. Makes sense. Renal took over the command of Fort Vaux on May 24th, 1916. After having taken down the oncoming Germans as best he could, Renal and his garrison hunkered down inside Fort Vaux as the German bombardment now picked up. And it didn't just pick up, it started to deluge shells on Fort Vaux itself. Reynal himself estimated there were thousands of shells an hour falling on Vaux. So, Fort Vaux. 
It was the smallest of the forts on the Verdun battlefield. The fort itself is shaped like a trapezoid and is oriented northeast towards Germany, of course. Its base is roughly 200 meters wide and its upper base, again, roughly 120 meters wide. Lake Dumont Vaux also made a hump in the earth that protruded cannon and machine guns. On the fort's northeast and northwest corners, separated above ground by a deep moat, but again, connected underground by tunnels, were the two pillboxes that bristled with machine guns. Standing from the tunnels were two main hallways that led to the barracks hall at the bottom base of Fort Vaux. German shells had actually broken through and exposed a part of the northeast hallway, but Reynal had had that repaired and covered with sandbags. From the ruined gun turret, another hallway ran down the center of the fort back to the barracks, again at, at the base of the trapezoid. All of these hallways were tight brickwork constructions measuring three feet wide by five feet high. The average man couldn't stand up straight in them. So, with the shells tearing down, falling on Fort Vaux, Reynald took stock of what he had inside his fort. This is what was going on. Because of gas shells also falling on the fort, instead of just high explosive, every possible hole, every aperture in the fort had been closed up with sandbags. Now this was June 1916, so the icy mud and the snow that had seen the beginning of the battle had given way to the spring heat of the Mortom and Cote 304 battles and had also kept on developing into now blazing summer heat. So with the fort all shut up, the heat inside the fort was stifling. Stone walls retained heat rather than dissipating it. Instead of the full garrison of 250 men, Reynal had 600 men inside the fort, and this fort was a quarter of the size of Duomont. He had his garrison, he had wounded men in there who were seeking shelter from the battlefield outside. He had men who'd been lost, guys who'd lost their units and crawled over to the Fort Vaux so that they could get out of the artillery fire and maybe live another day. They had stragglers. He had deserters. A lot of these deserters were probably not the best people to have around for morale. But Reynal had a cistern in the fort that had hundreds of gallons of water. And with careful rationing, Reynal knew that he could hold off for a long time. He had plenty of ammo, he had plenty of men, and with the water rationing, he could hold out for a long time. He also had four carrier pigeons. These were pigeons who were trained to fly back to the citadel in Verdun itself and deliver any messages that Reynal would attach to them. As the shells fell on Fort Vaux all through the night, Reynal had his men build defenses inside the fort. In the tunnels, sandbag walls were built, spaced 15 feet apart, 
each one manned by one man with either hand grenades or a machine gun. This would come into play very soon. Early on the morning of June 2nd, the bombardment stopped. And as we know with World War I tactics, that meant that the infantry attack was coming. It did. Elements of the German 50th Infantry Division immediately scrambled down the moat of the fort right into French machine gun fire from those two pillboxes on the northwest and northeast sides of the fort. The French were merciless. They cut them down as they scrambled down the side of the moat trying to get underneath the pillboxes to get out of the line of fire. However, the two bunkers could support each other by shooting guys either off the top of each other's roofs or from underneath each other. However, some German pioneers, engineer troops, made it to the top of the, the pillboxes, which they then tried to take out with hand grenades. And this was the main fighting that took place on Fort Vaux all during June 2nd, while other units went around the fort and then began to cut it off from the rest of the French army. The fighting continued for the two pillboxes. By the end of the day, the Germans had broken through the northwest one. They got through because of that breach in the, uh, in the corridor that had been exposed previously. They found it, they got in it, and that was it. They were now inside the fort. So at the end of June 2nd, Major Reynal sent out his first carrier pigeon, stating that he needed help, that he was surrounded. The French army knew that Fort Vaux was in trouble, and General Robert Nivelle, the commander of the French 2nd Army at Verdun, immediately launched a relief attack, which failed with great loss of life for the French infantry. On June 3rd, the Germans finished cutting off Fort Vaux completely from the rest of the army. And inside the fort, now the fighting was in those two main corridors. Remember, three feet wide, five feet high, total darkness, stifling heat, sandbag walls. As German troops advanced, out of the blackness would come clinking sound of a hand grenade landing on the ground at their feet or ruptured night of a machine gun blasting pretty much right into their faces at point-blank range. The Germans succeeded in taking down a sandbag wall. There would be another one 15 feet behind them. Fort Vaux was not going to be Fort Duomo. As Reynal's men and the German pioneers fought their battle inside the tunnels of Fort Vaux outside, General Nivelle launched another relief attack to relieve the pressure on Fort Vaux. It failed, again, with a horrible loss of life for the French Poilus. When news of this new failure reached him, Nivelle sent a nasty little note to the corps commander who had conducted the attack, stating that perhaps his men didn't quite realize the significance of their mission and what a sacred duty it was to help out their comrades inside the fort. He was basically saying that 
the French infantry on the ground hadn't tried hard enough to break through the murderous artillery barrage and German machine gun fire. Nivelle, again, was quite the leader. On June 4th, the fighting in Fort Vaux continued, with the French stuck inside the fort resolutely determined to not give it up. Germans decided to try to smoke them out. They fired flamethrowers through every available hole and air vent that they could find. But it didn't work. In the northwest corridor, the Germans pressed their attack again in the darkness. And a French lieutenant named Girard basically beat back an entire attack by himself. In the southwest pillbox of Fort Vaux, German pioneers blew a hole in the side of it and immediately tried to rush in with flamethrowers and men. But the French army, French soldiers inside Vaux quickly reacted, rushed into the pillbox, and killed every single German attacker who tried to get in. They then captured the flamethrowers and turned them on any Germans who were trying to keep continuing getting into the pillbox. This was the fight for Fort Vaux. Reynal would not give it up. Outside, Nivelle launched another counterattack to relieve Vaux, this time using the French 124th Infantry Division. Six waves of men assaulted the German lines just past Fort Vaux. All six waves were shot down. Inside the fort, something disastrous was found. The gauge for the water cistern was found to be broken. There was nowhere near as much water as Major Renal had thought. In fact, for all 600 men that he had in his fort on June 4th, he was down to 12 gallons of water in the stifling heat. The broken water gauge now showed Renal's position to be very precarious inside the fort. How much longer could he hold out with no water? How much longer could he hold out with no relief? Every night, Renal had been signaling messages to Fort Souville, the only fort that he knew that he could reach, begging for relief, begging for artillery. But Fort Souville wouldn't answer. They might have thought that perhaps it was a trick that Fort Vaux had already fallen, and it was the Germans who were, who were sending out these fake messages to them. With his last carrier pigeon, Major Reynal had begged French forces to tell personnel at Fort Souville to acknowledge his messages and listen to what he was, he was requesting. That night of the 4th, Reynal gathered all of the walking wounded he could find and sent them out of Vaux, headed south. The Germans had surrounded the fort, but it was known that there were gaps in their lines. Anyone who couldn't fight was sent out to try and get through those gaps. Only a handful of men would make it back to French lines. The rest were caught in a hail of machine gun and artillery fire and were wiped out. On June 5th, the fight continued for the fort 
Germans breached the Southwest pillbox again and were beaten back again by Lieutenant Gerard. Fort Souville assisted this time by slamming Fort Vaux with artillery and thus wiping out some of the German attackers. In the Northwest Corridor, the Germans inched forward and took the latrine further, dealing a blow to the Poilu's morale inside the fort. On June 6th, the fight continued inside the fort. By now, French soldiers were passing out at their posts from lack of water. Others were licking the walls to try and gather any moisture they could. Still more were gagging and retching violently when they attempted to drink their own urine. A French relief attack was mounted again to try to break through and get to Fort Vaux. This time, Nivelle sent in a battalion. I don't know why he would try with a battalion when he had just tried a couple of days before within a division. The battalion was wiped out. Germans pulled some troops back and now shelled Fort Vaux. This time, one of the shells broke through and caved in the roof of the main gallery. Reynal knew it was up. It couldn't really hold out much longer. On June 7th, Reynal sent an officer down one of the contested corridors with a white flag and a letter for the nearest German commander. The nearest German officers, a lieutenant and a captain, rushed forward. They knew what this meant. Meeting the French officer, they were led into the French-held part of the fort. There, they were led past two rows of French poilus standing rigidly at attention. At the end of the hall, the Germans were led to Reynal's office. There, the Major informed his enemies that he was surrendering the fort. Reynal and his men could do no more. The Germans were shocked when they gathered at the entrance of Fort Vaux and the battered Frenchmen came out. A journalist on the scene said Reynal and his poilus were the living image of desolation. They were the wretched personification of the artillery-ruined landscape surrounding them. Once the poilus were out of the fort, several of them broke away for a water-filled shell hole nearby. They hadn't had a drop of water in two days, and the high probability that there was a corpse in the shell hole didn't stop them from guzzling the putrid water. Fort Vaux had fallen to the Germans. Virtually all of Pétain's main strong points in his line of resistance had now been taken by the Germans. On June 8th, German 50th Infantry Division pushed out past Fort Vaux to capitalize on its hard-won success. As the Germans advanced, they slammed into the poorly organized and demoralized French 37th Infantry Division, who were Robert Nivelle's sixth counterattack to relieve Fort Vaux. The Germans shot the African troops of the 37th Infantry Division to pieces. Losses were so catastrophically high that General Pétain angrily intervened this time. There were to be no more attacks without his approval. 
Behind German lines, Major Renault was given an audience with the crown prince, Little Willie himself, who congratulated the disheveled major on his gallant defense of the fort. According to the book Verdun by Georges Blanc, the crown prince then gave Reynal bolt cutters as a token of his gallantry, citing there were no swords to be offered. But a sword was later found and switched out with the bolt cutters. Major Reynal then began his new life as a prisoner of war. The Germans had lost almost 3,000 men to take Fort Vaux. In defending it, Rinald's garrison had lost 50. It was stunning proof that the forts were indeed very much still useful. Of course, in Nivelle's reputation-saving and constant counterattacks to relieve Fort Vaux, the French had suffered thousands of casualties. And now the Germans were just three miles from Verdun itself. And what happens next, we'll have to wait for the next episode. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen. And I can be reached through the website, battleofverdunpodcast.com, through iTunes with your reviews, which would be greatly appreciated. Stitcher, FeedBurner, and Facebook. Talk to you folks again soon. Take care.